Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Exodus this morning. Well, considering Exodus chapter 1 and chapter 2 for our time in God's Word this morning. And uh, I, I do tell you, I, I am aware of the hour, and I will do my best this morning. Um, but uh, if you uh, think we're getting done by noon, um, well, God can do miracles, so we'll see what happens. But, uh, but I trust God will speak to us in His Word. Uh, for time's sake, uh, I know I normally read the text of, that I'll be preaching on, but I'm going to skip doing that this morning. And why don't we just ask God to help uh, as we listen to Him. Father, uh, we, do, um, we do give you thanks for this great day in which we've uh, been here as we've heard testimony of your work. Uh, in this community and, and even testimony of your great saving work in these four who just walked through the baptismal water. We're reminded that Christ once walked through those waters uh, to testify to his commitment to do all that you have called him to do. And now you continue to expand his work and save the lost. And we are so thankful for that. It is such a great privilege to see, Father, such a great encouragement to our hearts. Father, we pray that you continue to expand your kingdom even as we consider your word this morning. So help us to hear it as you would have us. Help, help me to speak it as you would have me. And Father, uh, may the voice of our God be truly heard through his word. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. It was on August 31st uh, in the year 2021, after about 20 years of uh, military presence, the American military forces withdrew uh, their troops from Afghanistan. Over the previous 17 days, the United States evacuated over 120,000 U.S. citizens and allies. Sadly, as you know, that withdrawal was met with aggression from America's enemies. As 13 U.S. servicemen were killed during the withdrawal on August 26. Reuters reports, as some staff learned of the growing number of U.S. military dead from mounted television screens in the White House West Wing as the day progressed, they let out cries of despair as the numbers multiplied. I trust those cries of despair were shared across this country as we mourn those who died in defense of U.S. citizens. And as tragic as that death is, can you imagine the response if it wasn't 13 fatalities in a day, but 3,000? Also in 2021, ABC News reports that 12 U.S. cities set an all-time record for homicides, Chicago leading the nation, most by gun violence. It's been reported that last year over 20,000 Americans were died from the use of guns, almost 400 a week. This, of course, has led to new initiatives about inner-city policing, gun law restrictions, poverty prevention, mental health and addiction care. As tragic, of course, as this is, and it is tragic, imagine our country's response if it was not 400 dying a week, but 24,000. 2021, also, as you know, saw COVID-19 continue to bring misery and death here in America, leading to social and political confusion and chaos as we wrestled as a country through mask requirements and vaccine mandates and school closures and social distancing. In an attempt to prop up the struggling U.S. economy and provide a way forward through this health crisis, uh, earlier in 2021, the United States passed a bipartisan law, a $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill, in which the White House 
calls the American Rescue Plan. Sadly, I think by most accounts, the rescue fell short. According to John Hopkins University, 446,000 Americans died last year from COVID-19. As tragic as it is, and it is tragic, imagine the response if instead of 446,000, it was over twice that number, a million dying in a year. Yesterday marks the 49th anniversary of the Supreme Court decision, which we know as Roe versus Wade. Since that time, more than 3,000 American babies have lost their life every day for the last 17,885 days. It's 24,000 American babies a week, on average, well over a million a year. I would suggest to you if that U.S. enemies were bringing this kind of casualty or inner city crime or a ravaging virus causing this, we would use every resource available to us to stop it. Instead, our government sanctions it. Of course, we'd like to speak to you this morning about the sanctity of human life. I would declare to you, I believe by the authority of the very word of God, that all human life is sacred. Life that's impacted by military conflict, violent gangs, viruses, or yes, even doctors. Specifically, I would like to address the issue of abortion, even as we think about the plight of our children, but not simply abortion, but, the, but children in general, you know, understanding of what children are according to God's word. I do so to prepare you. I preached this morning to prepare you. This is now the 15th consecutive Sanctity of Human Life sermon I have given on the third Sunday in January since 2007 every year. And I do so every year to prepare you for when you encounter an unplanned pregnancy. Whether you're the girl who is pregnant or the boy who caused it, a friend who's aware of it, a parent, a grandparent. We are told that 10% of abortions, those who uh, receive abortion, identify themselves as born-again Christian. I have read that four out of 10 of those who have had an abortion in America attended church at least once in the previous month. And I, I wonder what you will say when the world seems to become crashing down upon you and abortion seems like the only answer. I want to prepare you for that day. And I would even pause and Say, if there's anyone here this morning that might be considering an abortion right now of a pregnancy that they're currently experiencing or aware of that, I pray and beg you that you would reach out to someone within this faith community. Come talk to me, talk to my wife, talk to someone, uh, another elder or their wives or someone you love and trust. I want you to understand what kind of church we have here. Because we understand what this is. This is a, a gathering of sinners. We don't stone sinners here. We don't condemn sinners here. We follow Jesus who was confronted with a woman in, in sexual immorality. And he said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And so I think you need to understand before we even get into this text. Is this church against abortion? Emphatically, yes. Is this church in favor of grace to sinners? I tell you even more so, yes. And so I preach to you this morning with grace. If you have had an abortion, if you've encouraged abortion, if you've pressured abortion, if you didn't stop an abortion, I want you to understand if you are in Christ, God forgives you. The Bible declares in Isaiah 43, I am he who blots out transgression 
for my own name's sake, I will remember your sins no more. So any follower of Christ who carries the guilt of abortion, please understand very clearly, this is the most important thing you can understand today, Christ has paid the penalty for that abortion. And so you should filter everything you hear today with this phrase, I remember your sins no more. I preached to you this morning with grace. I also preach with a degree of hope. As you know, our Supreme Court will rule this June on the constitutionality of Roe versus Wade. I think there's reason for hope that we might have progress here on the political uh, arena. And yet we should be aware, however the Supreme Court rules come June, abortion will not end in June. It will not become illegal according to the Supreme Court decision. And so our hope, to be honest, is not ultimately in political activism or, or in, in our legislature or our president or so forth. Our hope, I think, ultimately is that one day Christ is returning, isn't he? And when he returns, Satan will be judged, evil will be defeated, and sin will be no more, including abortion. And so, of course, we pray as the church has always prayed, come Lord Jesus. So with that in mind, I, I hope you found your way to Exodus chapter 1 and chapter 2 as we consider this morning a society uh, that had turned on the children in that society, namely ancient Egypt. And I think we'll actually see striking parallels between what was taking place in Egypt and what happens every day here in America. And so I want to consider, based on this passage, the threat that we see to children and then, in addition, the need for help for those children. But first, let's consider what children are. I have three points this morning. The first beginning, the gift of children. It's at this point in the book of Exodus, most of you are aware, that the people of God are living in Egypt, and actually they are initially doing quite well, as we see in Exodus chapter 1 and verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And so we see this wonderful phrase that they were fruitful and multiplied. Now, uh, does that remind you of anything? I asked my kids last night, does that remind you of anything? And they all said, yes, Daddy, Genesis 1. They said, well, that's when God created male and female in his image. There in verse 28, I believe it is. And the first command that God gave him, the first instruction, the first words that God spoke to them is now, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. The reason that God wanted them and wants us to be fruitful and multiply is God wants to be known. You see, in ancient days, the kings would erect their likeness throughout their, their kingdom in order to spread their glory. Well, God also uh, puts out his likeness throughout his kingdom, but not in the form of graven images, but people. We are his image bearers. And so God's plan from the very beginning, of course, is for humans to spread out and grow all over this world so the entire world can see what God is doing. And so we read Exodus 1 and verse 7, and we say Israel is obeying. God's people are having children. They're obeying God and doing so. Now today, the question of having children is not a matter of obedience, but a matter of convenience. The question uh, is, uh, of children is a matter now, today, isn't it largely, I think almost universally, of personal preference and fulfillment. Not a submission to God and a giving of oneself for the life of others. But of course, not so for the people of God. We live for God and not ourselves, and therefore we gladly receive the command to be fruitful and multiply, as did Israel. 
And so we should read Exodus 1 and verse 7 and see Israel's being uh, fruitful and multiplying. We should therefore conclude, oh, Israel is obeying God. But that might not be the only verse that, that you are reminded of when, when you see this fruitful and multiplied language. You might be reminded of Genesis chapter 12 or Genesis 15 or Genesis 17, Genesis 22. And on and on it goes, I think it is. As God promised to Abraham and then to Isaac and then to Jacob, I will increase your number. Your, 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 your children your descendants will be as, as numerous as the sand on the seashore and the stars in the heaven. So shall your family be. And God has promised to bless them by giving them these children. I find it interesting to note that the fertility rate in the world in 1980, the worldwide fertility rate in 1980, 6%. Uh, today, what is that, 20, 42 years later? the worldwide fertility rate is 2.3% and falling. America's fertility rate currently is 1.7%, making it the second highest fertility rate in the Western world, second behind France. But both those nations, in fact, every Western nation's fertility rate is below what demographers call the, the replacement rate of 2.1. That every woman needs to have 2.1 children in order to just keep our, our population uh, stable. And so most demographers think that the worldwide population will peak around 9 billion people in about 50 years from now and then begin to decline if current rates continue. What might wonder, what's happened in the last 42 years? Why have people stopped having children? Well, it is perhaps because we often think of kids as a liability and not a blessing. I've read that there are cities where there are more dogs than children. After all, kids cost you money, don't they? That's true. They take your time, that's also true. They prevent you from doing what you want to do. That's also true. And we think about all these things, and we gather them all together, and we say, well, kids, kids are a liability. That's the conclusion that so many make. And yet I tell you, not so for the people of God. For we believe that to have children is to be blessed. And so we read Exodus 1-7, and we conclude, oh, Israel is being blessed by God. And I would, I would just simply echo, and just not, not only Israel, but Hamilton Baptist Church. Okay. I mean, we have a nursery full. We've got dozens in our youth group. We have a recent need uh, to, that we've hired a, a children's ministry director because God keeps bringing children into this church. And we, therefore, we, we should look around and see these kids everywhere, and we should conclude, oh, Hamilton Baptist Church is receiving the blessings of God. Now, I don't know, my, my brothers and sisters, if you look around and you turn on the news and you read the paper and you ever get to feel it's a bit overwhelming with all the chaos and the confusion and the craziness that gets out there and it seems to be accelerating, you might throw up your hands and think, what can I do? Well, I'll tell you what you could do. You could have children. Right? <laughs> you could adopt children. You could foster children. You could help raise grandchildren to love Jesus. You could work in one of our many children's youth uh, and youth ministries. There may be, I'll tell you, uh, there, there might be no greater work than you can do in this life than to have children and to point them to Jesus. Right? To have children, you see, is to obey God and to be blessed by God. But Pharaoh, according to Exodus, doesn't want God's name to be great. He wants his name to be great. And so he's upset with this population growth amongst these Hebrew people. In fact, he's threatened by it, as you see in verse 8. Now there arose a, a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. 
He's thinking, perhaps the next time we're attacked by, by an adversary, these guys from within our own country, the Hebrew people, are going to join them. Maybe like uh, many Americans felt in, during World War II of Japanese Americans, and they thought they might turn upon us. And yet rather than put them in internment camps, he decided to enslave them, as you see in verse 11. Therefore set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. So the, the Pharaoh's hope at this point is that if I enslave this people, it's going to weaken them, it's going to diminish them, it's going to prevent them from reproducing as quickly as they're, they're doing. In other words, I'm going to work them to death. Do you notice that policy failed according to verse 12? But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. And so that's not working, so it's time to escalate the plan uh, as a new strategy. Rather than enslave the adult Hebrew men, let's assault the baby Hebrew boys, as you see in verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of, them, uh, uh, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women to see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, you shall, uh, she shall live. And so Pharaoh now institutes this policy of subtle infanticide. By God's grace and the courage of these women, this policy also failed, as you see in verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do the thing the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So he escalated a third time now, this time to open infanticide, as you know, verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. But you shall let every daughter live. And you see that boy? Just throw him in the Nile. I mean, that's a pretty quick and painless, hassle-free way to get rid of that child. Kind of like putting him out in the dumpster out back. It is, I think, no coincidence uh, that the first plague that fell upon Egypt was God would turn the Nile into a river of blood. Almost as if he's saying to Egypt, you want a river of blood, I will give you a river of blood. As terrible and unthinkable as this is, I would suggest to you that it bears awful similarities to the plight, the blight of abortion on our land. And if you allow me, as we turn to point number two, the threat to children, share with you 10 observations, 10 parallels I see between what's happening in Egypt and what occurs in America. Uh, I know you don't have notes on your sheet. You, I'm going to go quick, so you may not be able to write these down. Just, just kind of listen, I think, might be helpful for you. But first of all, you we see that abortion is through the medical industry. It is the midwives in Egypt who are chosen to carry out this grisly assault, just as it is today. Planned Parenthood, which provides many beneficial reproductive services, there can be no doubt, uh, serves women in that way, is also happens to be the largest abortion provider in our land. In 2017, Planned Parenthood did more than $1.6 billion in business. This is a tragedy, I believe, that those whose goal should be to protect life are those willing to take that life. Secondly, you notice abortion is government-sponsored. In Egypt, in order to kill the babies, an order came from the king himself. This is a national policy, just as it is today, as our Supreme Court ruled in the 7-2 decision on January 22, 1973, declaring that our highest governing documents gives mothers the legal right to take the life of their unborn child. The government, by the way, has not only given this right in America, they actually sponsor it. Of that $1.6 billion earned by Planned Parenthood, 
came from the federal government in the form of grants. Third, abortion is widespread. The order, you notice, was given to, to, uh, to kill all the Hebrew boys, every son, not, not just a handful, all of them. The impact was wide and pervasive, just as it is today, as was shared, Anna shared with us, that one out of four women uh, will have at least one abortion by age 45. There are some American neighborhoods where the number of abortions actually outnumber the number of live births. Merle Hoffman, who is a major voice in the abortion rights movement, says accurately, I believe, abortion is as American as apple pie. Abortion is and continues to be the most common surgical procedure performed in America year after year after year. Fourth, abortion is for national pros prosperity. Pharaoh gave this command out of what he saw the best interests of his nation. So I don't think he had a bloodlust against the Hebrew people and necessarily hated them, but his, he was afraid his country could not endure the harm that might come from these Hebrew people. It was for their, the, the nation's well-being, just as it is today, at least presented in this way, is it not? Every child, a wanted child, not the right time, it's too inconvenient, and it's your future plan, simply don't want one, then, of course, you can have an abortion. Once again, Merle Hoffman, I think, is, is helpful, this voice uh, in favor of abortion. She says, my patients knew that abortion stops a beating heart, but my patients who made the choice to have an abortion also knew they were making the right one, a decision so vital it was worth stopping that heart, end quote. You might say, well, what, what, makes, what makes it the right decision? Well, she says her patients felt a great sense of power that comes from taking responsibility for one's own life. And that's what we hear. Take ownership of your life. Set your own course. And don't let a baby get in your way. And in fact, as one recent former president said, people have the right to succeed in life, and I quote him, and not be punished with a baby. Fifth, abortion is deceptive. You notice in Egypt, the killing is subtle at first. The midwives are to go, and during the birthing process, uh, take care of that child, present it like a stillbirth. There's a great deal of deceit that uh, Pharaoh uh, initially uh, enacted. I think just as today, we've even invented a word called abortion, a word to disguise what's actually happening, just like Pharaoh. The truth is, is that the child in the womb is a child. God's word is emphatic in this. For instance, in Psalm 139, the, the psalmist says, You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. In other words, the psalmist tells us that God's creation of human life within the womb is praise-inducing and wonder-evoking. Every single human being is made by God and is formed by God within the womb. Now, science has finally caught up with the Bible. Through ultrasounds and microscopic cameras and all the rest, we now know between uh, 10 weeks and 14 weeks after conception that the, uh, the time, by the way, in which the vast number, a majority of abortions take place, that with that child, at that time, all organs are present, the brain is functioning, the heart is pumping, the liver is making blood cells, the kidneys cleaning fluid, the baby sucks her thumb, grabs her foot, squints, swallows, and recoils from pain, and we've had pictures of her swimming and, yes, even smiling. Sixth, abortion is selective. In Egypt, it's only the boys who are selected to be killed. Males are, are uh, after all, potential soldiers, and so let's be selective about this. Just as today, it's not, by the way, the boys who are often selected for abortion, but for the girls. Now, this is illegal as far as I understand in America, but it is not worldwide. And around the world, millions of girls are aborted every year in disproportionate numbers. There are some areas in India, for every 100 boys born, there are 62 girls born. 
The rest of our lives are taken by abortion. By the year 2030, about eight years from now, uh, it is estimated that there'll be 6.3 million fewer female births because of selective abortion. Now this is, is clearly blatant sexism, which I think makes the pro-abortion argument kind of difficult. Because those who are pro-abortion seem to be very strong towards the feminist leaning. And yet it is the, the girls that are bearing the brunt of this. Now I mentioned this is not happening in the U.S. based upon gender, but it is happening in the U.S. based upon handicap. The Atlantic reports that 95% of children diagnosed in the womb with Down syndrome in America are now aborted. 95%. And that is, of course, particularly abhorrent to us here at Hamilton Baptist Church. Seventh, abortion is racist. In Egypt, the infanticide was done uh, just to the Jews. This was an act of ethnic cleansing, just as today. African Americans make up 13% of the United States population, but over 37% of the abortions are performed on African American babies. Now, I'm not suggesting that pro-abortion people are racist, but I am suggesting to you that their strategies and their marketing unproportionately target minority populations, and they do so intentionally. Eighth, abortion is all the way up to birth. You notice the midwives are to subtly take the lives of these babies. This is what we call infanticide. Just as happens today, we don't call it infanticide, we call it partial birth abortion. We deliver part of the baby, enough of the baby to, in order to determine the baby's gender, and then I won't tell you what, how this happens, but the doctor will then end the baby's life and present the baby as stillborn to the parents. Number nine, abortion is a growing evil. You notice it didn't work amongst the midwives. They refused such terrible acts, and so they moved from this subtle infanticide to just open, blatant infanticide, calling all the nation at this point into this unbelievable act. You say, well, of course, that can't happen in, a, in our land. I would refer you to the Journal of Medical Ethics, which includes an arg uh, article arguing for afterbirth abortion. The authors of this uh, article write that when circumstances occur after birth, such as would have justified abortion, what we call afterbirth abortion should be permissible. Of course, the former governor of Virginia, uh, former pediatric neuroscience, has made a very similar claim. I think this is the logical conclusion of the pro-abortion movement. If the child has no rights before they're born, why simply are we going to give that child rights once the location of that child has changed? Abortion, in other words, is a growing evil, and its logic will not stop in the womb. Tenth and lastly, abortion is a cause of great weeping. Being under the thumb of Pharaoh caused unimaginable pain. You see this at the end of Exodus chapter 2, the people of God groaning and weeping, just as today women and men who experience this terrible act. Merle Hoffman writes, women should discuss their abortions like they speak of a bikini wax, end quote. Of course, that won't happen, will it? The New York Magazine actually tells a story of a 19-year-old, Nicole, who was emotionally coerced by her boyfriend to get an abortion. A month after the abortion, she says that both she and her boyfriend regretted it. Quote, when I cry about it, I cry alone. He thinks it would make me sad to talk about, but I don't want our baby to think we forgot. See, Nicole is just simply experiencing what the Bible says she will experience according to Psalm 32. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day long. And as I mentioned already in my, the beginning of our talk here this morning, maybe Maybe you know what it's like to carry this burden that Nicole is carrying. 
There might be some here who are carrying this secret burden around and you're locked behind this prison door of shame. And, and if you're here and, and you've had an abortion or pressure in abortion or been involved in abortion in any way, that's why one of the reasons Jesus came to die, to, to pay for sins like that. And I, I want you to understand, you don't need to carry that burden alone. You can talk to those around you. You can seek counsel. You could uh, explore all the glories of the gospel together and how it works in these situations. And I believe the gospel will comfort you. And, and, and in fact, with, when the gospel comforts you, I think you perhaps have, have a, a more power and more influence to go and comfort others with the comfort with which you have been given, just as the scripture instructs us. And so I, I invite you this morning into this cause. I invite all of us into this cause. This is a fight that God's people have been doing from the very beginning. Even as we see in the book of Exodus, not just these striking parallels, but we see these pro-life heroes. We see, thirdly, these protectors of children. There are five protectors that I can identify. Oh, by the way, happen to be women. There are two men mentioned in Exodus 1 and 2. One is wicked, the other is stupid. There are five women, all are courageous and sacrificial. Now, I don't think men are exempt from, from this work, hence my sermon and my advocacy, even since I was a teenager. But I, I, do, I do believe that the courage of godly women is crucial in the work that God seeks to do on this issue. So let, let's, if you'll help explore with me the, these, these women, these five protectors of children. It, they begin, of course, with the midwives. We've already considered them. You see that again in verse 17 of chapter 1. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. They let the male children live. They said, they're not going to do this. They're not going to take the lives of these children. They saw this evil and they stood against it. They stood against their government. It's what we call civil disobedience. You say, where did they get that, in, that, that courage? Well, we're, we're told in verse 17 and elsewhere in this passage that they actually feared God. Right? They feared God more than losing their jobs. They feared God more than losing their freedom. They feared God even more than losing their lives. These women recognize there are worse things than death. Now, Pharaoh wants to know what's going on. He, he looks around. He sees all these Jewish toddlers uh, tumbling around. says, I thought I took care of this issue. And so in verse 18, so the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. Why are all these Jewish boys running around? Now, their answer is somewhat creative, isn't it? In verse 19, the midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Uh, we'll leave, I think, what is clearly a deception aside for another time. I just want you to note that God is very pleased with them, as you see in verse 20. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. So God says, I want to bless these women. So how God's going to bless them? He blessed them by giving them children. Did you notice their names, by the way? It's recorded there in verse 15. Shifra and Pua. Did you catch Pharaoh's name? You didn't. It's not recorded. It's not named. He's the mightiest man in the world. And in God's estimation, it's Pharaoh so-and-so. It's Pharaoh what's-his-name. Okay? See, God, God could care less what this man's name is. And yet for these pro-life heroines, God says, I want you to know their names. Write it down. 
names recorded for all generations. So the book of Proverbs tells us the memory of the righteous will be a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. I don't know if you're uh, shopping around for a name for a little girl, by the way. Shifra is a beautiful name for a beautiful woman. Pua, not as good, okay? (laughs) Secondly, we find Moses' mother. Her name is Jochebed. And we see her in Exodus chapter 2. For we read in verse 1, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman, The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. And so here, Jochebed says, I'm going to protect this child. You see, when when women consider abortion, from what I understand, they do so because it disrupts their life, their plans. Often there's a great deal of panic and pressure. They feel like there's no other option. And here we find a woman whose life is literally in danger if she keeps the baby she, she might be killed unless she lets someone kill her baby. And yet, what, is she, what did we do? What does she do? We find Jochebed, she hides her baby. And we're, we're even told why. There in verse 2, uh, she saw that he was a fine child. Maybe her translation says he was a beautiful child. I rarely have problems with the English translation of the Bible, but I do so here. Because this literal rendition there in verse 2 is that she saw him and he was good. Does that sound familiar to you? It reminds us of Genesis 1, when God saw all that he had made, and it was good. Now, she sees her baby and doesn't think, well, this baby is really, really attractive. Therefore, I don't want to do what the Pharaoh tells me to do. That's not what's going on here at all. She sees the baby, and she comes to the same conclusion about her baby that God does for all of creation. This is good. This is a work of God. He is God's creation, and I will protect him. This is what we we do with babies, right? We have this natural instinct, don't we? We protect babies. Babies are supposed to be safe with their mamas. What about the child in the womb, right? When the child is most vulnerable, I think God in his sovereignty puts the baby when he's most vulnerable, not not next to the mom or not, not attached to the mom, but actually, literally, inside the mom in order to be safe. And yet our day, the place that God has set to be the safest place in all the world, the womb of a mother, is now actually the most dangerous place to be. As 20% of U.S. babies do not make it out of the womb. Well, when Jochebed could hide him no longer, you notice what she did. She still chose life, didn't she? In verse 3, we read, when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket and, and made a bulrushes and dabbed it with, uh, with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed him among the reeds by the river bank. She, of course, has been commanded by Pharaoh to throw her baby into the Nile, and so she does. Just not quite as Pharaoh intended. The baby at this point can no longer live with her. He's making too much noise. And so she creates the best possible situation for this baby to go and live with another. Now, she didn't know how this was going to work out. She doesn't have all the answers. But this she knew. She wasn't going to choose death for this child. And I wonder if there's anything more courageous than when a mother gives up a child knowing that the best chance for this, this child is not to live with her but with someone else. 
Now, the story is, we'll see in a moment, and, and you know the story. It's amazing. She gets the child back. Miriam comes running back and says, Mom, Mom, can you believe it? Uh, the prince has found the baby, and, and she's going to let you nurse it. And, and, and so the baby is returned back to Jochebeb, and I great, imagine great rejoicing and thanksgiving to God took place in that house. But then the thought must occur, I, I only get to keep him now for three years or so. Only till he's weaned, and then at that point, I have to give him up, and he shall go live in another home with another family. And I think it's beautiful courage from this woman to take a stand for life. And I, I pray if you are ever in this, this position of this mother, that you would choose life, even if it is as hard as having to give up a child to another family. It is extraordinarily loving and sacrificial act. Well, third, we see, or fourth, I guess we should say, a Moses' sister. She's the fourth heroine. We know her name, of course, is Miriam. We read of her in verse 4 of chapter 2. And the sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down, down, down to, the, to bathe at the river while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. I love Miriam here, a um, little, little girl watching from the reeds wondering what's going to happen to her little brother. And then she sees this opportunity, and she immediately jumps on it. You know, excuse me, ma'am. <laughs> excuse me, uh, Miss Princess. Right? Uh, but does that Hebrew baby need somebody to nurse him? Because I'm pretty sure I could find somebody. Right? Oh, yeah, that'd be great. You see, Miriam is, is not in a position to decide the fate of the child. But she is in a close relationship with the person who's facing this crisis pregnancy. And what does she do? Well, she's watching. She's creative. She's opportunistic. She's available. She's faithful. She's an advocate. By the way, you can do that. You could be in a relationship close to those who don't know what to do in their situation. This is one of the reasons why we love Mosaic so much, is that they actually put people in the position of Miriam. That they're, they're, creates Miriams, trains Miriams, and puts them in that position that they can, can be close to someone who's walking through this. I'm so thankful for the Miriams in this world. Or a situation may arise, of course, that you literally one day may be the sister, or the dad, or the friend, or the coworker, or the grandparent. I would encourage you this morning to be like Miriam. By the way, most, most scholars think Miriam is between the ages of 6 and 12 at this point. Any kids here that age? Any kids? Any six-year-olds here? 12-year-olds here? Do you see what you can do for God? Right? Don't think, don't, uh, kids, listen. Don't think, I'm eight years old, I'm, I'm 10 years old. Well, I can't do anything. You know, I, I'm, I'm just trying to stay alive on Minecraft. All right? I don't, right? I don't know, what am I going to do? No, just look. God is working through an 8-year-old, a 10-year-old. And I, I'm telling you, he can work through you even, some, listen to me, children, even something as simple as looking after your younger siblings. 
when your mama can't. Lastly, consider Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter. Her name, we actually know it. If you want to wade through a genealogy in 1 Chronicles chapter 4, her name is Bithia. B-I-T-H-I-A. One commentator writes, out of the genocidal family came a tender-hearted princess. The father, of course, could, uh, without pity, send baby boys to their death, but seems not so for this daughter. She opens this little basket, and she sees, and there's this child, and the child is crying, and she takes pity on it. Right, the baby's tears moves the princess to begin to cry, and she says, I'm going to save this, this child. Of course, she's in a position of power to do so. Like, there's one of the few people that could probably thwart her dad at this point. Uh, she has the power to protect this life. And some of you may be in a position of power one day. I, I know we have a number of Patrick Henry students here. And, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of you guys are headed into politics. You're very ambitious. And, uh, uh, you're, right, you're going into law and politics and all the rest. And you may be in, in a position of power one day and influence. And I pray that uh, God would lead you in this issue. Of course, all of us have a power to vote here in this country. I think that's a wonderful power that we have to exercise, in particular for the most vulnerable of our population. I, I, I do believe when our government becomes unjust, and I'll be very clear here, I think our government is unjust, in particular in this issue, we must act in defense of justice and the most vulnerable. I, I see no other way to read scripture and come to a different conclusion. But I think it's clear that our engagement can't simply be political. It can't simply be a matter of voting every two years. Because children need more than laws. They do need laws, but they need more than laws. They need families transformed by the gospel, ready to care for the orphan. Which is exactly what Bithia is doing. You note verse 10. This is the last verse we'll consider this morning. When the, children, when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She, she named him Moses. Because she said, I drew him out of the water. She adopted him. That's the first adoption we find in the Bible. Bithia, the Egyptian princess, is an adoptive mother. And I'm so thankful for the many, many families here in this faith community who have adopted. Uh, I'm thankful for those families who have served as foster families. I do know that my wife uh, got an email just uh, this week from the region where our family has in the past served as a foster family. The email, I'll just tell you, the email says this past year, there has been an influx of children coming into foster care in our region, as well as not enough families to take care of those children. I'm not sure if you understand what happens to a child who's taken into foster, the foster system and there's not a family to place that child in the locality. The trauma that, that takes place on that child is doubled. Not only is the child experiencing the trauma of being removed from their family, but now the child is sent hundreds of miles away somewhere else in the state of Virginia where there's a foster family. And so we're removing the child from their family, from their school, from their community, from their friends, and the trauma just continues to multiply because sadly, somewhat stunningly in my opinion, that there are not enough families who are going to raise their hand and say, we will foster. We will care for them. Of course, we even heard from the baptismal pool this morning the power of a foster family. I know Allegra's headed to a meeting this week to hear more about this need. If you are interested in, in um, becoming acquainted with that need, uh, certainly she would love to, to talk to you about that. There, there are many children in need. I pray Hamilton Baptist Church will be among those who care for orphans as God's word instructs. So you have five women, right? Five women all standing for life. Um, and and I, I, I just, as we close this morning, I just, just talk to you moms for a moment. Um, I understand moms, you're very, very busy, right? Yeah. Um, and many of you moms, 
you think, uh, I know this because my wife happens to be a mom, and, and I've heard her say this, so I, I share she's not a first, the only one. Sometimes you think, you know, maybe I'll make a difference for God someday. Don't you ever think that? Maybe I'll serve God someday. I'll get involved in ministry. I'll, I'll begin to do this and that one day. You know, right? You know, some of you moms are just thinking, man, I just want five hours of sleep tonight. That's what I'm hoping for, right? Well, I don't know what all that God is doing through the moms in our church. But I will tell you that we are 30 verses into the book of Exodus. And Exodus, of course, records for us the greatest act of redemption in the Old Covenant. And the work of redemption at this point is being moved along entirely by women doing one thing, taking care of children. Now, women can do a thousand things. Please don't mishear me. And uh, praise God for all the ministry that women can do, and we need it all, and they could do a million things in service to God. But it, I'm telling you, it's striking. We're a chapter and a half through the book of Exodus, and the whole work of God is being advanced by women taking care of kids. And that God uses them in ways that they, they couldn't even begin to understand as they simply love the children in their lives and protect them. And I think they are wonderful examples to us, but not the best examples. Because there is, of course, one last pro-life hero. And it's not a woman. God's son. His name is Jesus. And he's the one whom this whole story prepares us for. See, Jesus also, as an infant, would face a tyrannical and threatened king who ordered all the baby boys to be killed. And just like Moses, he would escape that, that death because his parents believed God and stood for him. In fact, of all the places, the safest place for Jesus to go of all the places was actually Egypt, as his parents took him down there. And as God would use Moses to save his people, so he uses Jesus to save you and me. He does so by dying on the cross in our place. It's been testified to us, I think, four times from the baptismal waters, rising from the dead. And so I tell you, even as we end, that no matter what you've done, no matter what you've done, Christ will forgive you. Whether you're an abortive mother or a pressuring parent, an irresponsible boyfriend, an abortion doctor, if you trust God. If you trust in Christ, you yield your life to him. Because, he, in fact, he, he won't even simply forgive your sins, that God will adopt you into his family. You see, God is the greatest pro-life hero. He is the greatest adoptive father. And I pray that we would begin to think, if God would do that for me, then certainly I can give, and I could serve, and I could speak up, and I can adopt, and I could stand for life for them. Our Father, we pray that you would do this work in us. We long, dear Lord, to follow Jesus in standing for life. We're thankful for the life you've given us and all the children that we have and the grandchildren that are in this church, and we praise you for it, and yet we're conscious of the plight around us. We do pray, Father, that your people would not be sidelined, but we would indeed work for justice for the most vulnerable and help the brokenhearted, those who are troubled. Give part of our lives to the care of the orphan, 
as you have called us, even as you have shown us in Jesus. And so, Father, do this in our lives. And we do pray that there will come a day, perhaps even before Jesus returns, that abortion will be a thing that we will look back upon, kind of like we look on slavery now, and shake our head and think, how is that we ever did such things? Will you not move us there for the sake of the unborn and for your glory? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.